Hello, and welcome to Look-See, the podcast for the art curious. I'm Paige Goodpasture. So, wow, it has been a long time since my last Look-See conversation. Back in March, a lifetime ago, I was working on editing two interviews with amazing Richmond artists. I was really excited about the opening of the Quirk Hotel in Charlottesville, because in keeping with its devotion to artists and its community, the hotel is filled with incredible work from artists that we love and artists that we are just getting to know. A new exhibition was just opening at the Institute for Contemporary Art at VCU, and a show long in the making of the work of a collective of Black photographers in 1960s New York City called the Kamoingi Workshop had just opened with a joyful celebration at the Virginia Museum of Fine Arts. And then things changed. We have been living with a pandemic. Our city was one of the centers of the racial justice protests that roiled our country in the wake of the killing of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and many others. And now we are on the brink of a national election that will speak to how we see ourselves as a nation. And yet, Kehendi Wiley's statue, Rumors of War, stands on Arthur Ashe Boulevard. Commonwealth, an exhibition examining these very questions of who we are, how we define we the people, and how we can reimagine wealth and come together for the common good, opened a few weeks ago at the ICA at VCU. Galleries around town are open and are showing work that speaks to this moment, asks the hard questions, and holds up a mirror, as artists do. And at the Virginia Museum, visitors can still see the work of those 1960s Black photographers, and now through the lens of the events of the past six months. I was so honored to have Dr. Sarah Eckert, curator of that exhibition, join me via Zoom to talk about the show. I think you'll really enjoy our conversation. I am going to be speaking today with Dr. Sarah Eckert at the Virginia Museum for Fine Arts about the exhibition that uh, opened back in February. Uh, The exhibition is titled Working Together, Lewis Draper and the Kamoingi Workshop. Fortunately for all of us, the exhibition has been extended um, now that the museum is open again so that more of us have an opportunity to see it. The exhibition, Working Together, is an exhibition of the photography of a collective of Black photographers that formed in the 1960s called the Kamoingi Workshop. You've been working on this project for several years and all culminating in this exhibition, which, as I mentioned, opened on February 1st to great acclaim and excitement with many of the photographers there to speak in person about this period in their artistic lives. And then, sadly, the museum closed to the public on March 14th, but it is now reopened and we are all now able to um, have the opportunity to see the show in person. Additionally, you all created a wonderful virtual exhibition of the show that is on the museum's website, bmfa.museum. And the show chronicles the first 20 years of the Kamoingi Workshop, um, which, as I said, is a group of African-American photographers that um, was founded in 1963. Can you tell us a little bit about your inspiration 
for this exhibition, how this idea sort of got started in your mind and its connections to Richmond. So this project really begins with Lewis Draper's sister, Nell Draper Winston, who still lives here in Richmond. Uh, Lewis Draper and his sister Nell were both born here just east of the Richmond city border in, in eastern Henrico, in Henrico County. And Lewis Draper left Richmond in 1957 and moved to New York City, but he always maintained close family ties with his family and returned to Richmond. And after he passed away, uh, his sister inherited his entire body of work and his archive. And so she brought his work to the museum in 2012. It was just a really dramatic and exciting moment. I didn't know what to expect. I had not heard of Louis Draper before. When she brought his work, I unzipped the suitcase that she had it in not knowing what to expect. It was just stunning, beautiful work. The kind of work that, I mean, literally made my hand shake a little bit looking at it. I got so excited <laughs> and it was clear from seeing it that this was not like a Sunday photographer. This was a professional photographer. And so I went to Deborah Willis's book, Reflections in Black. And indeed, Lewis Draper was in the book. There were, I don't know, maybe three or four paragraphs about him and, and that connected him to the Komoenge workshop. So that was the first clue or my, my initial learning about the Komoenge workshop as a photography collective formed in 1963. Um, but Nell really needed a place for the archive and it was stored at the time at the University of Virginia, but just temporarily. They did not own the archive. I suggested she talk to Gordon Satinius at Candela because he had just done a beautiful project with the artist Ida Lenz, a photographer from the 1950s, New York-based, who had an entire body of work. And, and I just thought he just did such a sensitive job and a beautiful book of Ida Lenz's work that I suggested she talk with Gordon. And indeed, Gordon then represented the estate for a few years at Candela. And that meant that I could just drive over to Candela and look at these photographs in the context of his archive, which was really an incredible experience. And it meant that I could see, you know, any given image, I could see all the prints that he had made of that image. So there's an um, image that gets repeated a lot uh, called John Henry. It was on the cover of a magazine in 1966. And that's one that Lewis Draper printed often. So I could see all 10 versions that were in the, in, in the estate and, and try to figure out kind of how he was changing the print when he was making it and just getting to know him as a printer and as an artist from looking through that expansive version of his work rather than just seeing one print on a wall at a gallery somewhere. But I think even more importantly to me, I was able to start reading his own papers and there was a file on the Komoenge workshop and it became clear that he really had been the group's historian and, and something of their poet and, and, and a writer. And I was really captivated by the way that he described Kamoinge. And so the way that I conceived of the project was really that it would be a photography show, but that it really needed to include Louis Draper's voice and, and that I wanted it to be his story of the Komoenge workshop. So in 1972, he wrote a history of the group and I wanted that to be at the front of the catalog before the history that I wrote. And then I wanted to include his descriptions of Komoenge throughout the wall text in the exhibition uh, as a way also just to, to represent the richness of the archive that we have. After we acquired the entire archive in 2015, late in 2015, we received a National Endowment for the Humanities grant and with that grant, we were able to hire additional staff and then catalog 
and then digitize, photograph every single piece of paper and photograph and contact sheet and negative in the archive and put that all online. So that came out at the same time as the exhibition, but that was absolutely integral to the process of curating the exhibition because we were just, you know, fully immersed in the archive as a team at the museum. I had a wonderful research assistant, Shreya Cochran, our archivist, Courtney DeCasey, uh, assistant archivist Margot Lentzmeyer and photographer Sandra Sellers. You know, we were just constantly finding things, figuring out what they were. I would think I would have one narrative and then I, we would find another something else. So it was a very uh, organic process back and forth between the archive and the exhibition, the form that the exhibition and the form that the book took also completely informed then with oral histories with the living Kamoige workshop members from that early period. So very early on, I, I started talking with the members. I think Tony Barboza first and then Buford Smith and then on through all nine of the living members. We recorded oral histories with the members. So things that they would tell me would also inform things I would look for in the archive and vice versa. I would find things in the archive and I would ask the artist what they were. It was a very expansive process. So it was a really intensive, uh, ultimately about eight year long project. And so you said that um, you knew from early on that the culminating exhibition would be driven by or structured around Louis Draper's voice for a number of reasons, I imagine. One is that the VMFA was able to acquire his archive and he is a native of Richmond. And then also just organically, he seemed to be the person that was telling the story, at least in words, of the Kamoyagi workshop in real time as it was operating and forming and then operating in the 1960s. As you were getting this big picture of what the Kamoyagi workshop was, what were some of the elements of his voice that began to sort of jump out at you that then became threads that run through this exhibition? It's a good question. One, I think it was just the prevalence of his voice. So I knew what we had in the archive, which were his descriptions, you know, a focus, just the really elegant ways that he wrote about a search for truth, a need for truth, and a response to the untruths that they had seen in the media in their portrayals of African-Americans in the 1960s. So there were those descriptions. But I think for me, one of the more affirming moments thinking about his voice was when I wanted to see Portfolio 1 and Portfolio 2. So these are portfolios that the artists put together in 1964 and 1965, where every artist got one photograph. And we had Portfolio 1, but I wasn't sure if it was complete because I hadn't compared it to something else. And we did not have Portfolio 2. And I knew that the Museum of Modern Art had both. So I made an appointment to go and see it. I'm not sure why it was such a big moment for me, but when we laid them out at, at MoMA, we laid out the portfolios, Lou had a statement at the front of each portfolio. So I also realized that kind of that was this very, I was going to another institution and I was going to New York and I was finding his voice. So he, um, you know, there was um, a mission statement at the opening of each portfolio that was for the group. And then in portfolio one, and, and you can see this in the book and also in the exhibition with the portfolio laid out, Lou had like a two line poem in portfolio one, but he actually had a two page poem at the front of portfolio two. So that just for me was confirmation that he 
you know, his, his voice was clearly important if the, if the group chose to have his poetry at the beginning of their portfolios. And then also uh, the following year in 1966, the group had probably their largest publication in camera magazine, which was an international photography magazine. And, and I think the reason that they actually got it was that that publication was because Cartier-Bresson, the photographer, had visited and put them in contact with the editor of camera. And that opened, uh, that, that series of photographs actually opened with Lou's poem, the same one that had been in Portfolio 2. And he really just had such an emphasis on the idea of community. So there were really three layers to the way I felt he talked about community. And, and one was the community of photographers and their support for one another. The second was the way that they were portraying their own communities truthfully. And then the third was then their commitment to those communities, both in the early days and showing the work in a photography gallery that they had in Harlem. And then the other was through mentorship and the ways that they were really involved in, in mentoring students. And then we found a newspaper that talked about one of the programs, um, Youth in Action Program, and then portraits that he took of some of the young students, just beautiful, sensitive portraits of teenagers that were also teens that they were not just technically teaching, not just teaching this sort of practical education on photography, how to use a camera, but also this moment of teaching about what representation meant and how important it was to think about how you were representing yourself and your own community through photography and, and the need for that kind of representation. And so I, I think of the portraits almost as an example that he was giving them, that he's teaching them, but he's also making these beautiful portraits of them and then showing them these portraits. So those are just a few of the ways I think about his voice. As you're describing that, I'm thinking about, so you led up to this exhibition, the Community Workshop exhibition, with four previous ex smaller exhibitions that were all inspired by and included images from um, publications called the Black Photographer's Annual, which was linked with Kamoingi, correct, but not directly a Kamoingi publication. There were overlaps in the people who were involved in both. Yes. And I don't know, they were every six months or something. So it was over the course of two years. Yes, every six months. So it was two years and it was a rotation every uh, six months. Exactly. As I viewed those exhibitions, one of the things that became very clear as a through line was this idea of mentorship and specifically the communication of the idea that representation was so important, you know, even from the very earliest black photographers who did very formal studio portraits of black families or the photographers in the Kamoingi workshop who were also making street photography to try to reflect their truth. So this idea of the importance of black photographers behind the lens and the idea of representation of their truth, which I think also is reflected in one of one of Lewis Draper's quotes, which maybe is from one of these essays at the beginning. But that whole idea is, is really a through line through not only this exhibition, but the previous ones. Yeah, and, and I think the, um, so the, so the, 
Black Photographers Annual was founded by Buford Smith, who was a Kamoinge member, and it emerged out of these conversations. So you're right, it was not specifically Kamoinge, and yet so many of the photo editors that helped with the initial edition, the initial volume with Buford were Kamoinge members. So absolutely, there is a, a connection and a through line in the kinds of photographs they were thinking about and and looking at. And and Toni Morrison actually wrote the intro to to volume one and spoke about this as she called it true and free I think I thought that Tony Barboza said it beautifully when he said what kind of rule was with the photographs whether these were kind of quote-unquote positive images or whether these were images of struggle or these were images you know difficult images they had to be made in love and I thought that that was a beautiful way of describing it I thought that that was just such a good way to put it and and a part of that that I that the Black Photographers Annual made clear, um, but was something that Kamwenge felt strongly about, was honoring their elders that came before them. And so the Black Photographers Annual very consciously went back to honor studio photographers like James Van Der Zee and P.H. Polk at the same time as they wanted to mentor younger photographers who were just beginning. And so that's definitely a theme throughout. I think this is on the homepage of the virtual exhibition. The quote that you sort of open that page with is a quote from Louis Draper that says something like that the Kamoingi workshop, while operating within an, an arena of negation, was primarily forged in an atmosphere of hope and not despair, which I think is another way of saying exactly what Tony Barbosa was saying. And also speaks a little bit to the fact that for the most part, the members of the Kamoingi workshop were not, they may have, they were photojournalists perhaps in, in their sort of other life, in their professional life. Some of them were, some of them were studio photographers or even fashion photographers. But in the context of the Kamoingi workshop, they were more trying to reflect the truth of their communities. The exhibition covers a relatively small time period, but a very broad range of genres. You know, everything from street photography to portraits to even abstraction. So I think in that sense, it's maybe a little bit not what everyone would expect when they go to this exhibition. And I'd love for you to talk about that a little bit, too, because I think it's very it broadens our ideas about photography. Yeah, so um, I think Erin Dugan in the essay wrote a, a kind of wrote beautifully about the categories we've made in art history and how limiting they are, especially with the idea of street photography versus abstraction. Um, because not just with Kamoinge, but with any photographer, there's so much fluidity between those. They're falsely clean categories that we've made. And I think that while Kamoinge, for a few years in the beginning, in the early 60s, really as a group was committed to the form of street photography in Black communities. That was something that they, when you read and listen to the dialogue from the time, it was something that started feeling pretty restrictive because a number of the artists came into Kamoinge already doing abstract photography. And so there was a lot of debate around this question of what 
responsibility they had as Black photographers to make images about the community versus their own kind of artistic vision. And for some of those photographers like Alfinar, he had such an abstract vision. He was as his daughter Mia Fenar did such a beautiful job describing, you know, they'd be walking along and she wouldn't see it. And then he would make this photograph of say a salt pile in New Jersey. And it's the most stunning, gorgeous, abstract image of pattern and light. He had studied in Japan and, and had a, a was you know, really interested in Japanese aesthetics. Uh, Sean Walker will tell you about all of the surrealist film they were watching and how interested they were in surrealism. A lot of foreign film that they were studying closely Louis Draper loved abstract paintings. So Paul Clay was one of his favorite artists. We've got a contact sheet of photographs he made, you know, at, at MoMA. There's so much that is influencing those photographs. And I, and I think it's something that Kamoinge got really tired of always being put in the street photography category. So while the, the exhibition begins there, because I think chronologically it's appropriate and, and that was really a collective effort in the 60s, they quickly expanded. There was so much, they were, they were showing each other their work weekly. And so Alfinar's abstractions, Lewis Draper's abstractions, um, there's a whole dialogue around shadows and self-portraiture. And those are the kinds of things through studio visits that I just started to see emerge, these commonalities between works. And, you know, and as the artist would say, you know, they they would put things in the wall and they would see them. So how could there not be a kind of dialogue? And it would be a compliment to make something that might be a response to something somebody had shown previously. And so I wanted to kind of show the ways that they had individual, very particular styles and visions, but then the ways that they were clearly in conversation in aesthetic, well, in literal conversation and in, in, in an aesthetic conversation with one another. And I think that that is another way that in which at that time, Black artists were operating in an arena of negation. There's almost like too many strands of conversation going on here. One is about the the importance of the eye of the photographer. And that kind of came out in the portraiture and street photography a lot, making images of folks that weren't being seen but then this idea of just whoever you are, whether you're, you know, whatever your skin color, whatever your background, whatever your gender, whatever that is, your artist sensibility is, you know, there and valid and wasn't being acknowledged and seen in the same way. And, and that moment is so, I think it's the, the larger context to understand is how Photography being accepted as a fine art in museums is so recent. It really is the same time period that they were forming that photography was beginning to be shown in museums. So the Museum of Modern Art was one of the very few places you could go to see photography shown as a fine art. And one of the things that I loved was a story from Herb Randall, who was Lou Draper's earliest friend. And he talked about introducing Lou Draper to Alfinar in the... Harry Callahan and Robert Frank exhibition at MoMA, which I looked up was in 1962. And there, right, like, right there was this sense, Harry Callahan being a very abstract artist and, uh, and Robert Frank being kind of the, the artist, one of the biggest influences on street photography for the next several generations. And so I just love that these kind of founders um, had their initial meeting in that exhibition. 
But the other thing is that when he says negation, part of what he's talking about is the total lack of African-American photographers in museums. So even though MoMA was collecting photography, Roy DiCarapa was, I think, probably one of the very few African-American photographers in their collection. It was hard to find photography in museums in the first place, but very difficult to find African-American photographers in museums. So when he talks about negation, I, I think there was there was a lot of outright discrimination they were facing, but that was their their goal was to foster a community uh, where they would, as Ray Francis, uh, I think, put it, find what they needed amongst each other. And they very much did that. How long does the exhibition run? What are the what are the new ways to visit the museum after the reopening? Sure. So it will be on view till October 18th and it's, it's free. And as long as you bring a mask, so you can come and see the work in person. And there really is no substitute for seeing any work of art in person, but I think it's harder for people to understand the difference between seeing a black and white image. Um, It seems maybe deceptively simple that you would get an understanding of it online, which you can, but uh, gelatin silver prints are just such a, a rich, beautiful, the, the prints themselves really are something to experience in person and you and you can't fully get a sense of the printing, just the, they were all such incredible printers and did such magic in the dark room and you can't get that full sense online. That said, because the museum closed, we did, and I'm very happy we did produce a virtual online exhibition. So all the photographs are arranged with the same wall text and the same thematic organization, but then you can actually access the archival material even more in depth online than you can in the museum. So you can flip through the entire 1966 camera magazine. You get the link to the digital Black Photographer's Annual and you can flip through those. And then you have all of the artist interviews. All that information can be found on the museum's website, which is vmfa.museum. Sarah, thank you so much for joining me on Look-See today. And I'm so glad that we finally got a chance to talk about this exhibition and that we now can come and see it. Thank you. And I, maybe I'll get to see you at the museum. Well, that's it for this episode of Look-See, the podcast for the art curious. If you want to know more about this exhibition and the works and artists included in it, head to the Virginia Museum of Fine Arts. The show is on view through this Sunday, October 18th. As Sarah said, there's nothing like seeing art in person, especially these beautiful silver gelatin prints. Admission to the museum is free and all health precautions are being taken. After you see the show in person, you can revisit it and dig in deeper through the incredible online resources that are available on the museum's website, vmfa.museum. I'm Paige Goodpasture, and thank you for listening. It is good to be back.